Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Our culture has become increasingly transparent. And for the most part, I think this is a good thing. Although seeing pictures of the quiche you had for breakfast or that oddly shaped growth on your neck are not things any of us really need to see, right? Self-disclosure is accepted, even expected in many settings. Whether in churches or bars, support groups and Bible studies, classrooms and offices, people are freer to talk about their fears and phobias, addictions and abuse, issues in their family of origin, issues in their marriage, challenges of being single. But even in this day of increased awareness and openness on so many topics, one topic where the most oversharing of people get as quiet as a college library on a Saturday night is the topic of mental illness. Why is that? Why is it easier to ask for prayer for a heart attack than for a panic attack? For a cancer diagnosis than for bipolar disorder? It can't be because there aren't that many people who struggle with mental health challenges. According to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, one in five adults experienced a mental health disorder in 2020. One in 20 experienced a serious mental illness. One in 15 experienced both a substance use disorder and mental illness, and 12 million had serious thoughts of suicide. So in a room like this, here at Apopka, let's say there's 500 people. 100 people in a room this size are currently experiencing some form of mental illness from depression to borderline personality to autism to bipolar disorder to post-traumatic stress disorder to obsessive compulsive disorder to panic attacks, not to mention the substance abuse issues that often parallels these problems. So for whatever reason, that we don't talk about it. It's not because there aren't many people struggling with their mental health. There are plenty. Several of our pastors and some of our elders recently completed a brief certification course as mental health first aiders. And there's a picture of some of us that were there, or all of us that were there. The trainer was named Elaine Sefton who herself is a two-time suicide survivor. And she made this revealing observation. She said, it's acceptable to talk about problems with your body from here to here. But it's not acceptable to talk about problems you have from here to here. And when that happens, people who suffer isolate, withdraw, and stay silent about their dangerous thoughts and distressing emotions and stuff them deeper and deeper inside. 
and the stigma will remain where silence is maintained. The stigma will re remain where silence is maintained. Someone has called mental illness the no casserole illness. Someone breaks their leg, people call them up, offer to take them to their doctor's appointment, bring a meal over. But if someone's brain is broken, people usually don't reach out because they feel so awkward to actually talk about what's happening or they're just unsure about how to respond. And yet we are largely ignoring vast numbers of our population who are silently suffering mentally and emotionally more than those who suffer with cancer, heart disease, and diabetes combined. I pray that this series will be a catalyst to change the way we talk about mental illness and mental health and begin to erase the stifling stigma and stereotypes that unnecessarily add to the burden of those suffering from a mental illness. And I want you to know up front, this series is important to me for two reasons. Number one, first as a follower of Jesus, I want to be about what he was about. In Luke chapter four, we read that Jesus had just finished a remarkable 40-day time of testing in the wilderness where Satan has offered him every temptation imaginable. Now, we read about three of them, but I think it would be naive to think he was only tempted three times by Satan during those 40 days. Jesus is exhausted. He's weary. He returns to his hometown of Nazareth, the place where he grew up. He goes to the local Jewish synagogue, as was his custom. And when he's there, they hand him the scroll of Isaiah the prophet, which was the scripture reading for the day. And with our Bibles, we, you know, we think we flip through pages, but they would literally scroll through a scroll and not by swiping, but by unrolling. So Jesus takes this scroll from the writings of Isaiah the prophet and he enrolls it to these verses in chapter 61. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness, from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus reads these words and he sat down and he looked at the crowd gathered there that day and he said to them this, today this passage has been fulfilled in your presence. And Jesus was saying, Isaiah is prophesying that a Messiah is coming. And when he comes, you'll know it's him because this is what the Messiah is going to be about. And I'm announcing today that I'm the Messiah. That would create quite a buzz in the room, don't you think? I won't go into the details of what happens after this. I've covered it before in past sermons. But the essence of what Jesus is communicating is this. This is what I'm going to be about I'm going to preach good news to the poor. I'm going to bind up the brokenhearted. I'm going to free the captives. I'm going to release prisoners from darkness. In essence, Jesus said, you're going to be able to see my messianic ministry by seeing that I'm going to stand with those who suffer. I'm going to stand with those who suffer. And if you and I as followers of Jesus Christ are going to be like our Messiah, we need to stand with people who suffer, and some of the people who suffer the greatest in our society are people living with mental illness. 
Surgeon General recently reported that teenagers are more at risk of suicide since the onset of the COVID pandemic than ever before in our nation's history. Their feelings of isolation, uncertainties about the future, substance abuse, and other problems occurring in the home have triggered soaring rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation nationwide. Young people across every socioeconomic class, race, ethnicity are affected with 6,600 teenagers completing suicide in 2020 alone. Did you know that roughly 20 American veterans... 20 American veterans die by suicide every day, accounting for 14% of all suicides, though they represent only 8% of our population. Factoring in the suicide statistics across all of our population, one person completes a suicide attempt every 12.8 minutes, while another 30 will attempt it during that same time period. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for those ages 10 to 34 and claims more lives annually than war, murders, and natural disasters combined. Friends, people are suffering greatly. And wherever people are suffering, Jesus stands with them. And they need to know that Jesus, Messiah, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he arose from the dead. That guy knows you and loves you and wants you to know you're not defined by your diagnosis and you are not alone. And even though right now you may feel an inner darkness that is so deep, even the tiniest light of Jesus can help someone find hope and help through another day. Second reason this series is important to me is because it's personal. I want to set this up by making a couple of important statements. First thing we need to understand is this. Mental illness is no respecter of persons. Doesn't care what color you are, what gender you are, where you went to school, what degree you got or didn't get, how much money you have, how you voted, if you voted, where you live, what kind of car you drive, if you go to church, if you believe in God, don't believe. Mental illness, like few things in this broken world, does not discriminate. So whether you're a plumber, a paralegal, a paramedic, a programmer, project manager, professional athlete, physical therapist, pharmacist, police officer, personal trainer, or a pastor and a pastor's wife, none of us gets a hall pass from the effects of being born into a fallen race, living in a fallen place. Secondly, the circumstances that bring mental illness to light are often a surprise to all people involved. Sometimes it's a friend or a loved one or perhaps someone you respected and admired from afar who you never imagined to be struggling until something happened. And I've learned it doesn't even have to be something that's necessarily bad. In fact, it could be something that's typically a joyous occasion even like giving birth. What I'm about to tell you, I do so with my wife's 
permission and because of her great courage. When my wife was pregnant with our second child back in 1991, she experienced a debilitating fear over the last few weeks of her pregnancy. Earlier in the pregnancy, she'd been diagnosed with gestational diabetes, which triggered a pattern of fearful thoughts. And over the last few weeks of her pregnancy, she was terrified. She had difficulty sleeping. She couldn't turn her mind off from catastrophizing about the worst fears of her pregnancy. And then she just mentally and emotionally shut down. Her doctor decided it would be best to take the baby by cesarean birth with the thought that Melinda would then recover. But instead, she showed increasing signs of distress. So much so that five days after giving birth, I had to make a decision to have her discharged from the maternity ward and take her home in a very unstable condition or transfer her to a behavioral hospital. And I made the gut-wrenching decision to have her go to the hospital for treatment of what was later called postpartum psychosis. One of the hardest days of my life, I was 29. And I sent my newborn baby home with my parents in one car, and I followed the ambulance to another hospital where my wife would be a patient for several days, and all from giving birth. That's why we never tell our story of childbirth to any expectant parents. I'm afraid they'll run screaming from the room. Honestly, I thought my career in ministry was over. I remember sitting on the couch one day in my living room in Lexington, Kentucky, before I went to visit Melinda at the hospital. And I said, with my hands held out in surrender, Lord, if you want me to give up my preaching ministry to take care of my wife, which is my first ministry, I'll do that. And so often when we reach the peak of our pain points, and the only way through is not try harder, and it's not work smarter, it's simply to surrender to God. God shows up, and he did. And thankfully, after many, many harrowing twists and unexpected turns, and with the help of some needed medication prescribed by a wonderful psychiatrist who was also a follower of Jesus, Melinda started to show signs of recovery. And three months after Rachel was born, she was fully functioning as a mom, a wife, a daughter, a sister, an active participant in our church community. And I want to say for the next Several years, for the most part, we never said much about that experience to anyone outside of our closest circles of friendship. Like trying to bury a bad memory from a difficult time, we just kind of moved on with life and ministry and assumed that though we would face many kinds of trials ahead, that would never be one of them again. And then one day, about five years ago, Melinda learns that her cousin, who she was very close to growing up, who had struggled with depression for years, was having suicidal ideation 
he told their aunt that he'd bought a gun and it wasn't for hunting. Melinda reached out along with many others, but in spite of their efforts, he ended his life in a carefully arranged and prepared manner. About 10 months later, my dad died. Now that was not unexpected. Dad was 90, ready to go be with the Lord. But two months after my dad died, almost a year to the day when her cousin killed himself, one of Melinda's beloved brothers took his life in an abrupt and shocking manner. There was no note. There was no warning. There was no advanced preparations that we are aware of. And that triggered a trauma that truthfully we have both struggled to come to terms with since. Then about nine months after that, one of my brothers suddenly died from complications of his cirrhosis of the liver. And then two months after that, Melinda's mother died, not unexpectedly, but certainly untimely in light of all that we've been through in the past year and the accumulated trauma and grief mentally and emotionally overwhelmed Melinda and resulted in another hospitalization. And you know when this happened? Right after we kicked off a campaign to raise $13 million in a two-year period to fund our ministry, missions, and future expansion that we called Say Yes. And some of you are aware of that. Leading that is pressure enough on its own. But when the lead pastor has to be gone for an extended period during a key ministry season like that to deal with a personal and family crisis, it puts a unique pressure on everybody around me and I want to say this before you in Lake County and everybody online, I thank God for the pastoral staff and the elder team we have here at Journey. They gave me time away for myself and to be with Melinda. They gave us space to heal and recover without creating any demands or criticisms. There was no judgment. And I was given nothing but love and prayer and support. And I want you to know how rare that is in churches. That's so rare. That's how the church should function, but so often it doesn't. Churchgoers can be some of the worst offenders when it comes to attaching harmful and hurtful stigma to mental illness, often attributing it to spiritual failing, unconfessed sin, flimsy faith, or plain old lack of devotion. Ryan Casey Waller manages a Facebook page called Christians and Mental Health. And one day, he asked if anyone following the page had been diagnosed with a mental disorder by a mental health professional, only to be subsequently told by someone in a faith community that the diagnosis wasn't real or was dismissed or denied in some way. He said, the responses flooded my inbox. Listen to a sampling of what came back in just a few minutes of that posting. One guy wrote, I, I got told that being on medication would let demons in. This terrified and confused me. I was also told by my pastor that I brought all this upon myself. Another 
lady wrote, I've been told over and over again that mental illness is simply the result of a person not spending enough time with God. The most common response from my church family is that I hide behind these, behind these diagnoses instead of taking responsibility for my actions. Another lady wrote in, I had postpartum depression after the birth of each of my children. I saw another woman in my church community with the same issues described as weak by mutual friends who were in our congregation. So I kept my diagnosis to myself. I sought help from therapists, but not from people in my church. Listen to what she said as she concludes this. The church does not help with mental health. You get lots of sympathy, prayer, and meal trains if you have cancer, but if you get depressed, forget it. Thankfully, I want to say this. That has not been my experience at Journey. And part... And part of why we need to share this series is to let others who are suffering the way my family has suffered is that there is a church where everybody's welcome and nobody's perfect, especially the pastor and his family, and where anything is possible through Jesus. And that's why I've said through the years, as my time as your pastor, that journey is a church I always hoped God would let me pastor. Because this is a place where it's okay not to be okay, even if you forgot what it feels like to be okay. And just as an aside, because we got to give God some glory right now, let me tell you the results of that Say Yes campaign that Satan tried to disrupt in every way he possibly could. We started in March of 2019. We just concluded in December of 2021. But the total income was $12,541,000. The initial announced goal was $13 million. That's not too bad. The total given to missions was 1,372,000. The announced goal we said we were going to give was 1.3 million. We overgave to missions. We paid off $502,000 in debt. 364 people were baptized into Christ and 440 people completed rooted, which is our introductory. That's our introductory discipleship course. Here's some other key ministry events that happened during this time period. We started a residency program that trains amazing young adults for lifelong ministry. We just sent our first resident out who completed the program, Katie Carp, to Charlotte, North Carolina. We launched an online campus that reaches thousands each week from around the world that many are joining us on right now. And lastly, we opened a brand new building for our Lake County campus and never forget that this happened during the most toxic political climate and deadly global pandemic of our lifetimes. Someone needs to hear these words right now. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be seen in our bodies. And somebody needs to know that what Satan intended to harm us, God intended for our good. And all of us need to know that many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. Amen? And what I want us to see in this series is that the church has a wonderful opportunity to do something that can bring healing to our community and to our world unlike any other organization or institution. And we're going to talk more about how we can do that later in this series. But first, we have to get past some of the stifling stigmas that keep people silent. 
Here's a few of the primary contributing causes. First of all, I would say it's just lack of understanding. The nature of mental illness itself makes itself difficult to understand. To date, there is no way to diagnose mental disorders in the same way doctors do with other diseases, meaning there is no blood test for depression. There is no genetic screening for anxiety. When a patient comes down with pneumonia, doctors can usually locate the bacteria that brought on the condition, treat it immediately, and most often with great effectiveness, not so with hoarding or depression or panic attacks. So while it is true that these disorders are in fact diseases, it is also true that they are labeled as such, not so much by biological evidence, but rather the presentation of symptoms. Put simply, we diagnose mental illness mostly by observing behavior as opposed to running tests in the lab, and observing human behavior is far from an objective task. Scientists and therapists vary wildly in how they understand appropriate causes and treatments for mental illness. Doctors who look for hereditary factors and brain disorders recommend drugs. Therapists who blame early experience in mental conflicts recommend psychotherapy. Clinicians who focus on distorted thinking recommend cognitive therapy. Therapists with a religious orientation often suggest a combination of meditation, possibly medication, and prayer. And therapists who believe most problems arise from family dynamics usually recommend, predictably, family ther therapy. Ultimately, every disease, disorder, disability, disturbing or distressing behavior results from the original sin of our parents, Adam and Eve. And let me say again, nobody gets a hall pass from the effects of being born into a fallen race, living in a fallen place. So whether you want to call it depravity or heredity or biology or dysfunctionality, all of it is messy and it carries with it its own brand of misery. And specifically, why one person suffers from a particular mental malady is a combination of a lot of complicated factors that are not always easy to understand, and we'll talk more about that next week. But so often, a lack of understanding leads to number two, a lack of compassion. Throughout history, mental illness has been met with confusion, misunderstanding, and even mistreatment. Progress has been made and more people who suffer from a mental illness have never had more hope for a productive life than today. But despite the progress, we live in a society that is deeply confused about mental illness and mental health. I urge you to just listen and watch the way people with mental illness are portrayed in popular media. The mentally ill are often seen as frightening or funny, or both. Most people wouldn't give it a second thought, but for people whose loved ones suffer from an ongoing mental illness, such portrayals and myths and stereotypes are everywhere. I am ashamed to confess that I have said cruel and hurtful things in the past out of my ignorance. I once shared something in a sermon many years ago that compared various Christmas songs to different mental disorders. At the time, I thought it was funny, and many people laughed, 
but my assistant at the time had a son who struggled with mental illness nearly all of his life. And she came to me after she read through my manuscript and she said, John, when it's your family member, it's not funny. When you hear people casually throw around terms like, she's crazy, he's a psycho, that's so bipolar, it's not helpful. Misinformation about mental illness marginalizes and dehumanizes people as caricatures and not real people suffering from real illnesses. In some cases, it encourages mistreatment for those who are suffering. And it almost always discourages people from seeking help for mental illness. Pastor Andy Stanley says this. He says, don't criticize what you don't understand. Don't criticize what you don't understand. That's especially true for mental illness. The third reason that there are stigmas is lack of authenticity. And I'm talking about the church community in particular now. In their wonderful book, How People Grow, Dr. Doctors Henry Cloud and John Townsend tell the time that they were working with a large Christian organization and the topic of small groups in the church came up. And they were discussing the needs that small groups meet and how they operate and so on. And one of the top executives of this Christian organization, who was a good friend of Doctors Cloud and Townsend, raised his hand and he asked this revealing question. And I want you to see the question this guy asked. Look at this. What difference do you see between groups for people with problems and groups for normal people? Now read that again in case you missed that. What difference, this guy asked, leads a large Christian organization. Do you see between groups for people with problems and groups for normal people? Well, let me tell you what normal is. Normal is a medium-sized city in Illinois. It's right there. I'm not kidding. There's a city named Normal, Illinois. Normal is a setting on a dryer or a dishwasher. But in terms of human relationships, normal is what everybody appears to be until you get to know them. You see, we all want to think of ourselves as normal, but the writers of Scripture tell us this is not so at least not as God defines normal. The writers of Scripture give this sobering diagnosis of the human condition in more than one place. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's none who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. These words explain a very important biblical doctrine that smacks us right in the face in the opening pages of the opening book of the Bible, Genesis, and it doesn't let up until the last enemy is defeated in the closing book, Revelation, and here it is. Everybody's messed up. Everybody is messed up. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, no one who does good. No one is normal as God defines normal. So here's what you need to do right now. Turn to somebody on one side of you and say, I'm messed up. Go ahead and say it right now. It'll free you. I'm messed up. Lake County, do that right now. All right, online. Maybe you're with someone. 
Now turn to somebody on the other side and say, you're really messed up. No. Just kidding. Don't do that. Friends, listen to me. Like anything else we touch, the church is an imperfect institution because it's full of imperfect, self-obsessed, self-protective people like me and like you. And that's why one of our core statements at Journey for many years has been, nobody's perfect. Everybody say that right now. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's messed up in some way. And the sooner we can admit that, the healthier we will be both individually and institutionally because the healthiest people in the room understand their tendency to suddenly move toward patterns that can wreck and ruin their lives and they're quick to run to the Savior. Here's another reason that churches struggle to minister to the mentally ill. Just bad theology. Just bad theology. In her book, Darkness is My Only Companion, Catherine Green McCrate shares journal entries and stories and spiritual insights from her experience as a person who lives with bipolar disorder. And she mentions this about Christians' response to mental illness. She said, Christian communities still have a fear of the mentally ill. In part, they do not understand mental illness. In part, there's a false assumption that the Christian life should always be an easy path. And in part... The problem of suffering is hard to grasp. You see, in many churches, intentionally or unintentionally, there's an overriding emphasis on victorious Christian living with the unspoken assumption that real Christians don't have problems or at least not crippling, persistent problems that a prayer or two won't cure. Some churches purposely embrace this as a basic doctrine. Many others adopt it without realizing that they've done so This theology is based on the belief that as Christians, we should expect complete victory over the effects of sin here and now as evidence of our faith and that God loves us. However, this is in direct contradiction to what Jesus said to his closest disciples. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble and trouble they did have. Each one of the original 12 disciples was executed for his faith with the exception of John who was exiled to the island of Patmos and Judas who died by suicide. These were the men who literally changed the destiny of the world by their willingness to follow Jesus and kickstart the great global movement that would eventually become known as Christianity. And they all died violently, not to mention the persecution they repeatedly suffered before their deaths. One of these followers named Peter said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. A later follower of Jesus named Paul wrote about what he called a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and from becoming proud. We don't know if this was a physical problem or a mental problem, whatever it was. When Paul begged God to take it away, the Lord chose not to remove it, but to assure him. And he said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, which tells us that God not only allows our suffering, he glorifies himself in it. And when churches emphasize victory in a way that suggests committed Christians shouldn't experience problems. They violate the clear teaching of Scripture and they alienate and undermine the faith of suffering people of all kinds, including those touched by mental illness. 
Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not suggesting that it's inappropriate to talk about the victory we have in Christ and the abundant life he gives us in this present world. But what that abundant and victorious life looks like can be as diverse as the struggles and strongholds that we all have to deal with. As one guy who struggles with both depression and alcoholism wrote, the abundant life for me is not driving a Range Rover. For me, the abundant life is not being plagued by panic attacks. For me, abundant living is not coping with my stress by abusing alcohol. For me, abundant living is wanting to wake up with the sun instead of hiding out in my bed. For me, abundant living is doing the things that bring me joy and actually feeling that joy. For me, abundant living is loving and being loved by God. The abundant life is not about living without pain or having all the answers or all the cures. It is about trusting that the grace of Jesus is sufficient for us and that his power is made perfect in our weakness because in this world, we will have trouble. And that is certainly true. But listen to me, that's not all Jesus said. Here's the full statement from John 16. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In his grace, God gives us glimpses of the glory to come. Here and now, he makes old things new. He transforms dead souls into live wires. He claims and cleanses. He polishes and purifies. He repairs and recycles what people considered busted, busted broken, and battered. He breaks through darkness and he shines his light into places we thought could never be reached. He changes people from the inside out and he makes them able to bear things and believe things and beat things that seem impossible to us. He uses and infuses our stumbling, bumbling efforts to serve him with effective, graceful revelations of himself that somehow cause ripple in our world. And so let me say again as we close, you are not defined by your diagnosis and you are not alone. And even though right now your inner darkness may be deep, even the tiniest light of Jesus can help someone find hope and help through another day. And what I've learned and my wife has learned that even speaking the name of Jesus brings a power and a peace and a presence that can make all the difference. And that's what we're going to do right now. Would you stand with me, Lake County? Stand with me. Just stand with me right here. Father, I want to thank you just for helping me get through that. Lord, that is, the old hymn says, this is my story and this is my song. Father, I thank you for the courage of my wife.
Baptist Church family. I love this church family. We are deeply flawed in so many ways. But we run to you, Jesus. And we call on your name. And even now we say, I just want to speak the name of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect. And through Jesus, anything is possible.